Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Joining me today is Patrick Inglis, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Grinnell College, and he's going to talk about his recent book, Narrow Fairways, Getting By and Falling Behind in the New India, about how globalization is putting the rich and poor in this developing country together in ways that are both upending and reproducing a status quo of extreme inequality. And he does it through an in-depth, long-term ethnographic examination of wealthy members of golf clubs in the city of Bangalore and the poor caddies who carry their bags. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rich. Thank you for having me. So maybe just start by uh, telling us a bit about yourself, your your personal background, professional background, and just how you came to sociology. Yeah. So I, I teach in the sociology department at Grinnell College. Um, grew up in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and I was a high school English teacher in, in Vancouver, uh, in a predominantly working class, lower middle class, uh, area in East Vancouver. Um, after a few years of teaching came to New York city, um, to get my PhD and, you know, uh, and eventually turned my attention to India, uh, and this research, this research originally started as a, as a dissertation project in, in 2007, uh, many, many years ago. Yeah. And then how did you first come to this topic? What really sparked your interest in studying these uh, golf clubs and these caddies? Yeah, I, I, I never thought that I would study, do, do any, any kind of study at a golf club, uh, you know, let alone focus on these golf caddies. Um, but it's sort of, you know, it, it came about through, through a lot of reading and study of the globalization literature. Um, and what I was learning about India as, as, as a sort of focal point within that larger debate on globalization. Um, in 2005 or 2006, Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, had come out. Um, and I was in like, you know, the second or third year of my, of my PhD program. And so I sort of, you know, I wasn't so much interested in Thomas Friedman or the book, but, but the claims that he was making and, and how critics of globalization, uh, you know, people like Mike Davis or, uh, you know, David Harvey were, we're, we're, we're taking up Friedman's ideas and, and, and really being critical of it. Um, and so I, I, I originally planned to do a study of, of IT and software workers in Bangalore. Bangalore is known as the Silicon Valley of India. Um, and Fried, Friedman's book, The World is Flat, is set in Bangalore. And, and one of his primary sort of cases for the flat world, and, and, and by this he means you know, that, that as a result of, you know, free trade and free markets um, and, and telecommunications innovations and whatnot, that, that workers in India, uh, particularly in software and IT, were able to compete on a more level playing field. So this, this is his idea of the flat world. Um, and so the, my idea was to go to Bangalore and actually speak to some of these IT software folks. Um, and be, because he had started his book, uh, you know, the very first page of his book, In the World is Flat, um, you know, at this at this golf course in Bangalore, the Karnataka Golf Association, the acronym, of course, being the KGA, he starts his book at this 
golf club and he's standing there with a billionaire CEO and they're about to tee off at the golf course at the, at the KGA. Um, and he gets, and Friedman gets this advice from the CEO billionaire telling him to aim for the Microsoft and IBM buildings behind the first green. And, and so this, this becomes a, you know, and, and, and if it, uh, in, in defense of Friedman, right? Like he's not writing about golf courses or anything. He's just saying, like, you know, listen, I, I I've been coming to India for several years, you know, a couple, a couple decades back and forth, and and you know, lo and behold, I, I see these it the it giants, these buildings around this golf course. Um, he actually mentions his golf caddy on on page two, I believe. Um, and then and then he's you know he tells us this this story of you know lying in bed at night and he's not able to sleep and turns over uh, you know turns over and you know says to his wife honey I think the world is flat. So my when I wanted to study IT and software workers I thought you know why not start at this golf course um, there is an IT tech park right behind it as mentioned in Friedman's book and so I thought I'll just sort of use this as one of multiple sites of entry. Um, and then over time, you know, uh, I started playing golf and I got to know the members and eventually I got to know the caddies. And, and I realized that, that, that there was a more interesting story about the interaction and relationships between, these, the, between the rich and poor. And in, this, in, these, in these specific sites, these golf clubs, between the wealthy, the wealthy members and the poor, and the poor lower caste golf caddies. So that's, that's how it got going. Um, it took many, many months, though, to, to really figure out the question. Um, you know, and, but I, and I can talk more about that if you'd like and, and how it evolved, but yeah, that, that, this is, this is the idea. And it wasn't so much about Friedman. It was about the critical response to Friedman in the academic scholarly literature that I, I was really sort of trying to try and try to debate and, and, and truly engage with. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Cause it is a very novel approach, I think, to studying the on the ground, uh, consequences of globalization. Cause yeah, like you said, on the one hand, we have the, the more Friedman, uh, school or camp, the notion that India has benefited from globalization. And then on the other, we have this notion that globalization has created so-called two Indias or, you know, two other developing worlds, uh, coexisting but never interacting um the, the vast majority of people in these countries haven't felt much of whatever prosperity globalization has brought uh but you came to understand the situation uh through your work at these golf clubs uh between the members and the caddies very differently it wasn't so much the separation as it was these this kind of really deep intertwining mm -hmm. yeah I, I i think i think one of the things that critics of globalization misunderstand and, and and get wrong about the effects of globalization and, and let's just be clear on what 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 those effects are right when you when you emphasize and celebrate free markets and free trade and and, and the sort of limit limited regulatory role of the state um you know there there are inequalities that that can follow um but what the critics of globalization in these processes are really trying to we're trying to argue is that 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 this inequality that is produced is 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 forcing a physical social economic separation between rich and poor um and it, it over the course of my research and getting to know these members and caddies and and, and actually observing them on the golf courses i mean through, through the research i I learned to play golf. I took a membership at the at, at the KGA, and I played at all these golf courses. And actually observing their interactions and the result of their interactions, I, I I came to see the effects of globalization differently. Right, that when you when you privatize education, uh, healthcare, 
um, housing um, that 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 the poor are, are are sort of necessarily obligated to draw themselves um, closer to the rich, um, and this is this is this is an ideal case, if you will, and it's extreme case, but. There are multiple cases across India and across the global south, and I would even argue even in, in the United States today that this is happening more and more, where where poor and working class people are not able to, um, you know, you know, provide for themselves in ways that, um, you know, to to put food on the table, uh, you know, roofs over their heads, without some kind of relationship with others, right? Um, and 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 when the state is sort of stepping back from that role, um, you know, who 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 assumes that role? Well, what in the case of the golf caddies, they they work these relationships with the wealthy members, and so the, what the wealthy members do in return is, it, you know, if 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 they if they like and get along with the caddy, they will provide their caddy and and often and, and often a couple different caddies, um, you know, support for uh, uh, schooling, for healthcare, for housing for food. Uh, um, they will provide them with, uh, you know, interest-free loans, let's say. Um, if, if a brother or a sister falls ill, they'll, they'll pay for a surgery. And so what you have is, is, the, is, the, is the actual, is the nation state stepping back. And you have these wealthy, the wealthy members in this case sort of stepping forward, if you will, and, 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 and providing a degree of support that the caddies can't, can't find anywhere else. And so that that's what I'm saying. I mean, and, and this is an extreme case, as I say, but this is this is what I'm trying to show in the book is that rather than globalization pulling rich and poor apart, it's actually, you know, it, it's actually deepening their ties to one another. And I think that there are there there are there are there are extreme consequences to that as well. Uh, I mean, it's good in the short term because these caddies do get some kind of support. But uh, there's also deeper questions that I get to later in the book about, like, you know, civil society um, and, and how we support one another and, and whether or not globalization is providing the conditions that it can allow people to really become truly independent. Um, and and that's, not, not, that's not something that I found in, in this case. Yeah, and we get a, a very vivid example of this right from the jump. The first person we meet in the book on the first page is a, a caddy named Krishna, who describes the club where he works, which is the, the KGA, as you mentioned, as his school. The KGA is my school. And it, it's a very it's an eye-opening statement for for me and for other readers, I'm sure, but also for you, uh, as you as you show. So what what did he mean by that? And and what what really kind of uh, stood out for you when when you heard him say that and when you thought about it? Yeah, I, I mean that, that that's a really good question. You read it obviously. It, it starts it starts on the first page, and I mentioned this, um, but just, just a little bit of a background. I mean, I, I had spent a few months leading up to this very point. Really, I, I had hired a golf caddy um, who was who was coaching at a at a, a at the sort of public driving range in the center of the city, and and this caddy I named Ravi in the book, um, and he's a he's a, a golf caddy at the Bangalore Golf Club, and so. For several months, we had just been meeting several times, you know, several times a week at six thirty or seven in the morning, and I would just be practicing golf. Um, and as I was practicing golf, you know, in this in this driving public driving range where where all the members from the different uh, you know clubs came, I, I got to know the members. Um, and then, you know, within a week or two, they were inviting me to sit on the clubhouse patios and chat with them. And so. You know, and I, I just I carried out dozens of interviews, uh, you know, often with alcohol involved, you know, sipping whiskey in these, you know, private, exclusive, uh, you, know, in, you know, clubhouse patios. 
and not really paying attention much to the interactions between the members I was speaking with and their caddies or even the wait staff or anything else and hadn't really spoken to anyone who was part of the caddy class other than Robbie for several months. And then when I, I was in New York for the summer, this is summer of 2007, and I come back and I, I take up this six-month six month membership at the KGA. And on the first round, um, you know, Krishna is paired with me, or actually, I, I, I say paired with me, but he picked me out. And this often happens with the caddies. They, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tall, middle-class, white, uh, you know, to him and to anybody else, I would have appeared wealthy, although I was just a grad student, certainly relative to him, I was wealthy. Um, and, and he sort of, he sort of kind of works a relationship and he picks up my bag when I arrive at the golf course and then we're, we're on our way. And about the, and we were walking up the seventh fairway and, um, it just sort of strikes me the entire time we're speaking English, right? So all the, you know, he was, um, he wasn't, he wasn't a hundred percent fluent and proficient in the language, but we were, we were getting by. Um, and I just asked him, like, you know, how did you learn English? And he kind of looks at me as if this is a stupid question, and perhaps it was. And he says, my, my school is the KGA. Um, and, you know, you know this, Rich, as, uh, you know, doing ethnographic work there, you can, you can be kind of fumbling around in the dark for, for many, many weeks or months trying to figure out what the question is here. But when he said this to me, my school is the KGA, I, 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 took, the, I took a notebook out of, my, out of my pocket and I wrote it down and I circled it. Um, and I, I thought that that is the project. Like, what what is Krishna learning here, right? Like, you know, it, he he really was just referring to the language, to learning English. But I I sort of spun it, you know, differently. He wasn't just learning a language; um, he was learning how to live and survive in in this context. Um, he was learning he was learning how to how to relate to the members. Um, he, he was he was developing a set of aspirations as a response to to his interactions with them. There were a whole host of things that he was learning. Um, and so I, I, for the purpose of the project, I wanted to learn what he was learning. And so he became one of several caddies that I that I got to know. Um, this was in, I believe, September 2007. And over the next few months, I started rolling out these interviews, a series of, of more formal interviews with the golf caddies. Um, and I kept up the interviews with the, with the members. But there, was, there were three golf clubs. There's the KGA, as, as we've already talked about. There's the Bangalore Golf Club. Um, and then there's this private club um, called, called the Eagleton Golf Resort. And, and that's, that's outside of the city. And so I got, to know those, I got to know the caddies at each of these three golf clubs. And I roll out a series of interviews. It was sort of two rounds um, with, with about 15 to 20 of them at each of the golf clubs. Then I also did a I, I did a more involved survey which, with 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 each group of caddies. So although I I only interviewed formally say twenty to twenty five or so caddies from each of the clubs, I I, I sat down with with up to a hundred of, of the caddies and asked them sort of basic questions about their family background and education and where they live and these kinds of things. So that that's and then this sort of takes me through the through through basically basically a year of of field work just focused on the caddies now. Because I spoke to so many of the caddies um, for the purpose of the book, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't want any, and, and we read some of these ethnographies where five or six different people are quoted in every page, and I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, uh, I, I, in, in, a, in a way, I sort of sacrificed breadth um, and for, for depth. I wanted to get to know, um, you know a, a few of these caddies really, really well, and Krishna was one of them. So there's... So the book is really centered and focused on about eight to ten different caddies, as opposed to the you know dozens and dozens that I that I got to know. So, 
you know, and each of the chapters is, is is organized around around a couple different caddies throughout the book. That that's that's how the work unfolded. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great example that really kind of humanizes a lot of the structural conditions that you're engaging with in the book. And right from the outset, I think it's uh, it, it works really well. So going forward, then the the title of the first chapter is the caddy question, which you get from one of the club's archives from like over a hundred years ago in reference to a discussion about whether the club should hire caddies as employees instead of this more informal quasi-legal caddy management system that they had been using. And it's an issue that carries on to this day. And you show how the caddies have kind of periodically over those hundred years organized to try to improve their work conditions only to eventually just let it go. So tell us what explains why these efforts of collective action only end up uh, reinforcing this precarious system of labor management that is used uh, by the clubs. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, I, 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 I get into the archives of, of the KGA and the Bangalore golf club. They, you know, they, they they grant me permission to, to to read the records and I and I and I discover that at around the turn of the of the twentieth century, uh, you know, more than a hundred years ago, the Bangalore Golf Club, they're the members that sit on their advisory board are having a conversation about the caddies. And it and it turns out that they're really struggling to get caddies to come to the club. And so it comes up, why why don't we pay these guys? Why don't we why don't we, you know, put them on the books and make them regular employees and and, and that'll sort of, that'll compel them to come, right? If, if they're employees, they have to come. Um, and, and that's something that really it, it comes up a few times in the in the conversations in the minutes to these meetings that I had access to, but um, it 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 never really gains much traction, and then and it and it loses it loses all traction altogether. Um, you know, 100 years later, on the turn of the 21st century, because of the labor conditions just in Bangalore and and, and in the country, um, are such that you know. 80 to 90 percent of of all labor in India is in the informal sector, right? So, and, and what that means is that is that people are not given, you know, guaranteed contracts. They don't have much job security. Um, oftentimes, they're paid in cash as opposed to direct deposits in bank accounts. Um, they may or may not have access to healthcare benefits. They certainly don't have a pension, etc. Um, but also, I mean, in the turn of the 21st century, you just have you have hundreds of millions of more workers that are available, right, to to any kind of firm, uh, formal, informal, small and large. And so these these golf clubs um, now have access to to a pool of residual labor that is is oftentimes living very much at, at the gates of these clubs. Right. Um, and so. From the side of the of the clubs, they don't want to enter into any kind of formal arrangement or agreement with 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 this pool of labor, um, because it, it it doesn't you know one is there there's the financial hit it can take right, um, but there's also for for the members there's a political question here you know if we roll these caddies into our you know in, in, into the books and formalize their our, our contract and agreement with them, um, we may in fact invite you know union activity in the club and so. Um, and, and, and this is this is actually this is actually wrong on the facts, but there's something to it that that the clubs feel that if, if they don't name the caddies employees, if they if they keep calling them casual or contract labor, as they do, uh, both in writing and in their conversations with me, that the caddies have no basis or grounds to appeal for, for anything more formal. Right. Um, and it was it was one of the early puzzles for me uh, that the caddies 
you know, and 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 some of the, there are a few members, of course, that that do treat the caddies very well, but 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 the, I would say the majority don't, uh, and 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 even for the caddies who are treated well, right? There's a degree of precarity and informality about their lives, right? Like where they live, where they might send their kids to school, whether they have health, you know, healthcare expenses, you know, and and they're sort of compelled necessarily. To, to, to perform these extreme acts of servility and deference at, at the side of these members if they want to live and support their families. And so I, I, it, sort of, it sort of struck me as odd, like, because I'd meet with the caddies and they, you know, and this would, these would be private conversations and they, they'd say what the members say to them and what they feel about the relationship, et cetera. And then, and then I'd find that they, they actually weren't, they didn't seem all that interested in organizing uh, to form any kind of, you know, union, or or if they do form some kind of collective action, it's it it's really, it, it it's in a way to kind of further cement the status quo, right? And the status quo being, you know, we as caddies get to show up at the golf course, um, and we don't want to be told what to do. We want them. We want to work. We want to have. We want to have some kind of degree of autonomy to set up our our, our relationships with the members and 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 let that sort of proceed. Um, but of course, the, the the members and the and the clubs don't necessarily allow that full autonomy, right? So, the the clubs will say that they're contract casual laborers and that these guys can just kind of come and go as they like. Um, but that's actually not true in reality. Um, there, the each of the clubs has a caddy master who's a who's oftentimes a former caddy who's been elevated into the in, in, into a kind of paid formal managerial position in the club, and 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 his responsibility. Um, it is to ensure that 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 there's a member for any for any that the sorry there's a caddy for any member who wants one right so the caddy can often intervene in these relationships and say no you're not going with Patrick you're going with with someone else right um, and and Krishna was was really really upset about this uh, and so we had a series of conversations about about the caddy masters and the club and, and what they demanded of him right and and not just that he go with a particular member even though he didn't want to. But that he had to wear a uniform, right? That uh, that that he that he would be liable for for you know being suspended uh, if 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 a member complained. Like there's all these kinds of ways that the clubs act as formal institutions in control of the labor process. And Krishna uh, w- was very aware of this and wanted to transform it. But when I when I and we kept on coming to these conversations and we did so over 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 a few different years. And, and I think in in 2010 I'm back in Bangalore and we're having I, I'm having dinner. I'm having dinner with him and his family and said, well, you know, if you're so upset about this and disappointed in the members, why don't, why don't you organize the caddies and, and do something about it, right? Like, like, why don't you, you know, if they're going to treat you as formal employees, why don't you argue that you can become formal employees? And he's like, no, 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 no. Like he doesn't want that at all. Right. Like what he really wants is he, he wants, he wants, he wants just a little bit more autonomy and independence from these caddy masters who he, he sources as the, as the main problem. Right. Um, it doesn't appear to him or, or well, it, it, I think it appears to him that some kind of collective action might be warranted, but he also like, if you play it out and we did, um, you know, just, just speaking with one another, right? Like if, if you push it so far, you could become formal employees um, and then you can get guaranteed wages and you can get healthcare and a pension and you can plan for things. And you, you know, every couple of weeks or once a month, you get money in a bank account, right? Like this would be better. And he's like, no, like I, like he always thought that he could make more money given the way things were than in a situation where we, he would have to kind of forfeit that, that independence. I mean, and as it was, 
you know, and any caddy who's been there for a long time wants to develop a relationship, a close, you know, bond with, with a group of, say, five to six members. And, you know, Krishna calls them good members. But if you're a formal employee, you, you would potentially lose out on that, right? Like you would more and more have to go with the people that may not even give you much of a tip at the end of the day. Whereas right now, you know, he's, he's sort of, he's sort of balancing, like, I don't get everything I want. And sometimes the caddies tell me to do things I don't want to do. And sometimes members treat me badly, but the, but the, but the alternative is, is much worse. And so, um, and, and I, I think that, that sort of challenges some of the, some of the ways we think about informality and precarity in, in the global South, but, it, but also in the global North about what laborers want, right? Um, and also what they imagine might be possible for them and what, what the conditions of an organized collective struggle might be. Um, and I, I think we assume, and as I did many, many years ago, that these caddies would of course want to, you know, form a union and, and really try to, 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 to struggle to be formally recognized as employees of these golf clubs. But that's in fact not what they wanted at all. Yeah, it's a, Really big example, I think, of how these the status quo gets gets reproduced. It's 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 very well done uh, that analysis. So the caddies do get most of the focus, I'd say, in the book. But uh, when it comes to the elite members of the clubs themselves, um, it's really quite fascinating that so many of them have certainly benefited from globalization, from these liberalization policies and so on. But many of them are quite critical of India's direction in toward liberalization and are very sympathetic toward the conditions of India's masses, uh, who they see are getting caught up in these globalizing forces in ways that are often very harmful. But at the same time, these members don't seem to have very much sympathy at all for the plights of the specific caddies who work for them, who they see uh, all the time. What what explains that? Why is there that disconnect between their their the recognition and criticism toward globalization and their lack of it uh, when it comes to the people who they interact with on a daily basis? Well, I mean, I, I mean, the the short answer is simply that that actually, you know. Uh, you know, transforming systems and structures, beginning with with the club, um, in, in ways that that might suit the interests and, and and benefit the caddies more, would be a direct threat to them. So that that's the that, that that's the that's the short answer here. Um, but you're right. Like there, there was something kind of puzzling because remember there, there were those few months where I was just hanging out with members, right, and I was going to their parties and their restaurants that they owned, or or you know, and, and hanging out within the clubhouses and getting to know them and their families. And there were these conversations we would have um, about the poor um, and about about the state of India, and this is this is the mid two thousands and then beyond, right? And there was actually one guy who was highly highly critical of, of Thomas Friedman's book. He's like, "This is this is just absolute garbage. This is not true at all, right?" Like, we you know you can't talk about a flat world and have you know farmers committing suicide and the level of inequality and poverty we have, et cetera. Um, and then when I when I switched to the focus to, to talk about the caddies, and then I would ask 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 the members to respond or or, to, or to, to reflect on their interactions with the caddies, they there was this there was this shift in their way of thinking. And and what I what, what I figured out or what I understand what was happening was that there was this there was this deep sympathy and and almost radical progressivism that the med, that, that the members could could adopt when talking about the poor the kind of abstract category of the poor that existed and lived and labored beyond the walls of the of the golf clubs 
Um, but for the caddies, they 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 perceive the caddies as actually having a lot of opportunities. Um, I mean, you know, and and the first opportunity was just it was to serve them, obviously. Um, that that they could be learning English, right? That that they were getting cash in hand at the end, at the end of every day. Um, that this was a this was a privilege to work with them, and that if the caddies weren't coming up, that any any individual caddy who was still failing after several years and in some cases decades on the job, um, that wasn't the member's fault and it wasn't the club's fault. Um, it was it was the fault of these individual these individual caddies, and I think. You know, part of it, as I said earlier, a couple of minutes ago, is that there's a kind of self-preservation here, right? Like, you know, what would it really mean for the members to take seriously um, how these caddies um, are, are living, right? Um, be, beyond helping any one specific caddy out, right? Um, it would mean, um, you know, more fees uh, at the golf course. Um, it would mean a, a kind of democratization, if you will, of, of, of the golf club. And, and, me, and maybe even at a certain point, not even such a thing as a private golf club. Like you would have a public course, right? Like there's a whole series of things, both financial, political, uh, and social that, that would follow if they took seriously what was happening with these caddies. And so r- rather than take seriously what's going on with these caddies, what they do is they they sort of you know, deliberately and consciously, you know, try to seek out caddies that, 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 that achieve or, or, you know, fulfill some kind of ideal notion um, of, of, of the, you know, deserving poor, right? So you've got, you've got caddies who, who can, because of their own, their own sort of minor advantages here and there, um, can dress a little bit better. Uh, can't, who, who, who bathe more regularly, let's say, or brush their teeth or, uh, uh, you know, and, and et cetera. And, and those caddies are the ones who get selected by the members to be their caddies. And those caddies, if, if they have a, a good working relationship with a series of members can actually do okay for themselves. And what happens is over time, the members start to point to these caddies as the success cases. But also what happens is that the caddies who are successful they don't. They don't think of their advantages and their success as having anything to do with fortune or luck, right? And of course, it does because if you just show up at the golf course on any given day, you may or may not meet with somebody who's going to change, you know, who's going to who's going to transform your life. Um, but they they don't think in those terms. They think that actually I have done something um, in in my presentation of self and and how I actually work uh, with this member on the golf course to deserve or warrant this kind of economic and social attention. Um, and so this, this presents a, a real struggle for the collective solidarity of, of the class of caddies, right? Because, because any one caddy, if he's smart and rational about it, right, is not interested so much in, in, in developing a kind of collective action or solidarity with, with the caddies who are at his level. Their, their interest is to develop and deepen this solidarity with the members, right? Um, and and th- this, is, this is structural. Right. Uh, because the actual conditions for real substantive change just aren't necessarily in the cards. Yeah. And the, the so-called success stories engage in these strategies, this upward servility, a term that you use and that you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that allows some of them to advance, but being unable to truly break free from the extreme acts of servility and deference that the members expect of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, 
you know, I, I have chapter six, which is a um, which is about this one caddy named Ganesh, um, and I got to know Ganesh and his and, and his family uh, beginning in you know in now the spring of two thousand eight because I, I, I you know as I, as I've said I, I did a series of more formal formal interviews, but what came out of those interviews was you know I, I sort of shared mutual trust with a few of the caddies who became who became the sort of central figures of the book, and, and Ganesh was one of them. Um, and I, I meet Ganesh on the golf course. I'm playing golf. I've got a caddy and he's, he's working with a member who's, who had become a professional coach. Um, and it was making a lot of money and, and doing very well at it. Um, and I could tell that there was something really interesting and special about the relationship between, between Ganesh and, and this, and this member. And, and this member was working with a, with, with somebody on the golf course who was, who was learning golf. And so Ganesh was just hired to carry the bag for the person that that this that this member, this professional uh, coach, was helping out. Um, and over time, I, I it was interesting for me to track the relationship between the member uh, and Ganesh, and they spoke very very well of each other. I mean, the member, uh, you know, refer, you know, says you know, he, you know, he's going to be okay if he's with me, uh, and and he was, um, and actually. Ganesh grew up in 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 the neighboring state of Tamil Nadu and and had a, a very sort of you know hard luck story to tell of extreme poverty and and his family moves to Bangalore in the in the mid to late 1980s because there was a lot of development and growth um, actually you know physically around the golf course so this this tech park and the developments coming up um, but for the first you know first little while that Ganesh and his family is living there when he's really young I mean they're 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 eating broken rice, split rice, and you know dead worms, and they're they're living in very very poor conditions at at, at the side of of this open you know sewer, uh, and then he starts to work with 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 the member, and and over time the member helps helps to invest and in, you know he help, helps get him out of the slum, and he eventually gets into a second story apartment, and so you know Ganesh has has come up quite literally as a result of this of this relationship with. This member, as well as a few other members, um, and but but o- over time, I noticed that that Ganesh, like Ganesh, is not able to really reconcile um, his extreme dependence on this member and the others' members um, with 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 a, with a kind of guilt and shame for that, right? Like he can never be fully independent. Um, and, and and I don't I don't know if I want to give the give the chapter away, but but there's a um, uh, it's you know there, there's a sort of sad case that that unfolds that that results in the in the separation of Ganesh and this member, um, and uh, and it just sort of goes to show that that as much as the members might say that they care, and in this case this one particular member did did care greatly about Ganesh, um, that they're that they're only willing to go so far that they're not they're not going to transform the structural conditions of these guys' lives, right? This is not, this is not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that example in particular certainly calls the question of uh, the sustainability of uh, some of this, some of these relationships and uh, given the face of the structural conditions that they're encounter. Um, So when we talk about social mobility in, in India, I guess the legacy of the caste system is obviously quite integral and, you know, you approach that. And while the caddies say that caste does not play an important role in the clubs, you find a lot of ways <laughs> that, that show how it does. Uh, what are some examples of, of how you saw caste uh, and the legacy of caste still 
uh, influencing this emerging meritocratic, so-called meritocratic capitalist system uh, in India? Well, there's a chapter called Caste Illa, and in that, um, and Caste Illa, so Caste Illa just means in uh, Kannada, which is which, which is the language of, of Karnataka, um, and you know, Karnataka is, is 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 the state where Bangalore is, is the capital. Um, in Canada, caste, caste illa means caste is not there. Um, and what I notice is, is both the members and the caddies were, were, were almost reading off the same script, right? Both of them said caste didn't matter. Um, and at one level, it was true because, you know, in the space of the clubs, right? Like no member would ever say that I, I select or choose a caddy based on his caste background. Um, and and no and no caddy would say that he's only going to go with a particular member because of caste, right? Um, but of course, caste predicts who's going to be a member and who's going to be who's going to be a caddy. Um, and I I have you know I've, I've got a few different chapters that that deal with the question of caste, but in this in this particular one, I, I mean, I noticed that you know through through the stories of of these two guys, Arjun and Sampath, who. Who are well now as of today? Probably they're in their mid forties. But when I when I meet them, they're you know they're this is uh, you know 12, 12, 13 years ago, um, and they're raising their families and and they live at the back of this village, uh, Chelgata, um, which is directly adjacent to the IT park that I'd mentioned when we first started our conversation here, um, and and also opposite the backside of the KGA. And for them, they they told me stories of growing up poor, the back of this back of this village and the upper caste wealthier families would live in the center of this village. And, you know, they would be sort of like, they'd be obligated to go to the upper caste homes during, you know, festivals or birthdays and sort of give out gifts and these, and, and, and these upper caste people who would, you know, who, who, who would live in these homes would sort of, you know, drop, drop candy and, and not, you know, from, from windowsills and be sure that they didn't touch these guys. And what the KGA provided them when it comes up in the late 1980s is is a is quite literally an exit or like a reason to leave right um both you know uh, one of them stayed through uh stayed through high school and finished but at, at a very very poorly resourced government school at sampa uh, and the other one arjun he drops out in, in in the third grade but both of them you know early in their teens start to carry bags and become golf caddies at this golf course right and so they're, they're able to physically leave the space of Chalgata and come into a space that to them provides them, you know, a kind of opportunity and a degree of respect that is based on what they do and, and, and not who they are. Right. So, um, but, but later in the book and in, in other chapters, like I kind of show that, that, that these caste identities and where they live are, are, are not so easily dismissed and and they can't be overcome all that easily um in the case of arjun for example um you know he had said all along as, as sampath did that you know that castilla caste is not there but by by the end of the book i'm showing that you know because of caste because of where because of the geography of the village and where he lives you know he's got generations of family that live back there with him and even though he's come up a little bit and making making some money, um, I mean, o- o- over time he becomes a professional golfer, and that, that's a sort of we can talk about that. But he he makes some money, but that by the end of the book he's had an injury and he can't keep playing. But he'd love to leave Shalgata, but he can't because of his family. He, and, he, and he and he talks about quote bloody relationships, which 
for for me was really interesting like they're they're like you know you know bloody having multiple meanings one is like you know like damn it i don't i don't want to have these ties but also just at a at a at a at a, at a, at a genetic level that he that there were these blood ties with his families that he he couldn't he couldn't um he couldn't leave behind right so there were the opportunities in the space of the clubs but also like these guys and how their lives are are formed geographically economically or social socially make it really tough really tough for them to overcome right there's there's a the glimpse of possibility certainly in their aspirations and what they observe of the members and how they how they hear the members speak about themselves and their lives but for them, like it's it's actually not their lives in most cases are not transformed all all that much over time. Yeah, it's fascinating to read about these uh, the echoes of this stratification system still influencing them. Like even you know uh, the 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 education that they're that they're able to provide for their kids, right? Like you know um, you know this you know cast cast has a hugely predictive you know force. Uh, in, in in this realm as well, like Arjun is 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 only able to at the start of it when, when his children are are young and I'm just getting to know them. I mean, he's sending his kids to a nominally private school, right? And it's kind of a racket across India that you have these schools called private schools. But really, what they do is they take a little bit they take a little bit of money each month from 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 a number of poor people with within a local area. And because they're only taking a little bit of money, and uh, you know that they're and they're not very well resourced, and they don't provide great education, right? So, but those are the kind of schools that these caddies have access to for their children, right? Um, and what I notice is, you know, and we can talk about this if you want, but there was really only one case that I came across where a member wanted to ensure that the caddy that the caddy could educate his kids to the same level that the member would educate his own kids. Um, in the vast majority of cases, members are, are helping a little bit with these nominally private schools, right. That are very poorly resourced and, 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 you know, and, and kids eventually fail out. They don't, they don't do very well, but there was only one case where, where a member that I observed, like actually got a caddy's kids into schools that he would send his own, his own, his own kids to. Right. And so, um, so we, we can talk about like, you know, the the there 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 are members who arrive in Mercedes Benzes and and BMWs and they dress well and they're sending their kids to Europe uh you know for 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 golf lessons even or or schools and 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 in some cases they're treating their caddies kind of well but they're actually not committing to to education for the caddies kids so that the caddies kids don't end up being like caddies and in some cases the caddies kids do they drop out of school and they become caddies like their fathers yeah now the you to get at this now, the long-term trajectories, yeah. it's, it's, it's a real benefit of an ethnography like this one, about a decade or so of, of research that you really get to see how they play out over time. And, you know, it's here that we really see this, this ideology of individualism, mm-hmm. you know, based on individual achievements predicated on hard work and how it really colors how the caddies make sense of the paths they've taken and been on. Mm-hmm. And where they find themselves, as well as where they find their peers, whether yeah. that reflects upward or downward social mobility. So you've got some great stories that you've been hinting at of their lives and their families. Mm-hmm. So what what are then some of the major outcomes uh, and how they interpret them? Uh, a short answer. I mean, most of the caddies 
um, they assume that that their failures, if, if if they consider themselves to be a failures, and I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't say that they're failures. Um, I, I think that that how their lives have followed are, are a result of you know structural inequalities. But for them, how they understand their lives is that they've they 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 it's either bad luck, um, you know, or they or they just haven't they haven't done enough, right? Um, to 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 warrant you know success. Um, you, you mentioned the long term aspect of this study. I mean, I started in two thousand seven. Um, and I was still doing interviews and following up with guys in the in 2018, so 10, 11 years there. And um, the advantage of it, as as you, as you say, is that I, I can track these guys over time. But it's not just them that I'm tracking over time; it's their children that I'm tracking over time. When I meet the caddies, you know, Ganesh was a good example of this. Uh, same with Arjun and Sampath. When I meet these guys in 2007, 2008, and then they're inviting me into their homes. And 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 by the way, maybe we should have said this earlier. I'm I'm accompanied on these home community visits with 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 um, with people who are who are providing uh, you know translation interpretation work right so you know there are guys like Krishna and all the caddies really that that I can have English conversations with but the kind of deep nitty gritty sort of analytical stuff I, I I had to have had to have some some help with that because I I, I had a few words of Canada and Tamil but I did not speak the language as well enough to to actually you know converse with these guys over long term but. Again, going back to this, like when I meet the caddies and their and their kids, they're saying that their kids, uh, in Sampa's case, for example, he says that he, he has two boys that they may not become, uh, they may not work uh, in 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 careers and earn salaries that where where they they could you know that are going to be like the members, right? But but maybe his kids' kids, right, his grandkids, eventually might be able to work in these members' offices, right? Like under them, like as salary professionals that over time they would, they would improve. Um, and they become, you know, uh, they, they become accountants, lawyers, IT software was really big. They all, the, all these caddies, a lot of them, maybe not all of them, you know, even though they didn't know really what IT and software work was about, they wanted their kids to grow up and be IT software workers. So this is, you know, and their kids are four, five, six, seven years of age, right? And then 10 years passes and I'm, you know, and I'm visiting them every year or so, right. And spending summers with them and hanging out and speaking with them. And then, and it was really sad in the, in the case of, of Sampath. I mean, he has a son um, who was, who was today a golf caddy at the same course that his father was, was a caddy at, um, you know, he failed out of his, his 10th grade exams. Um, he hated school. Uh, I mean, the schools he, he was going to weren't, weren't very good. Um, and so he he and he, this, this is a sort of clear example of of, of how the poor are, are kind of reproducing themselves, right, generation after generation. Um, and it was it was really quite it was quite it was quite sad and heartbreaking to see um, to to follow this over time, right. Um, and I mean, and I would have I, obviously I would have preferred that things turn out differently, right, for these caddies and their families. And and for the majority of them, that that's that's not true. Um, for the ones that were able to get their kids somewhat, you know, decently educated, like they, and we mentioned this earlier, they end up assuming that it's because of result of, it's a result of their hard work that the members have helped them out in this way. And there's this effort to sort of separate themselves, right, um, at the level of rhetoric and, you know, at, 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 at interactionally and socially from the caddies who who they deem as unsuccessful or failures. And so there's this ideology that is at work and at play at this level among the caddies themselves about who gets ahead and why and 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 why others don't right and and leaving aside these structural questions and of course as a sociologist it's 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 my job i suppose to sort of 
tease out those structural conditions and stuff and, and that predict these kinds of things and why things turn out the way they do. But also just at a human level, it's, it, it has been kind of heartbreaking to follow and track over time. Yeah, I would say. So you've talked a little bit already about all the field work that you did and the, the people you spoke with. So why don't you tell us a bit more about what it was uh, like in terms of the obstacles, the challenges, uh, the experiences that you had studying these folks, given your own background and given the people who you were studying, the context you were in? Yeah, I would. Um, methodologically, it was it 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 was. It was challenging and difficult because I had three golf courses and we, we kind of really only talked about the KGA. Um, and, and of course, I, I would hope that people listening to this would, would go get the book and, and read about the other, the other golf clubs. But so like, you know, traversing the city, you know, and sometimes, and sometimes daily, um, but also coming in and out of homes um, and getting to know people. And I also like, I, I was invited to hang out with the caddies and their families. Like if, if they took, they took bus trips outside of the city to go, you know, visit their extended family in faraway villages. I would do that, and so there was a there was a sort of physical labor involved with the, with the methodological work. Um, I, I I don't want to leave out the question of positionality, my own positionality as as as, as a white uh, white male, um, you know, PhD educated uh, middle class um, that. That I believe certainly opened doors for me. Um, I mean, I've mentioned that the, the clubs provided me access to their private records. Um, uh, they and everything was on the up and up uh, as far as I was concerned. I mean, I got I got letters of support from them, uh, and they knew what I was doing uh, the whole time. But I, I and I, I've had I've had some friends in India and elsewhere tell me that you know if if I had been black or brown, right? Uh, if I had been somebody who didn't speak fluent English, not middle class, I would not have been given that kind of latitude. So that certainly helped. Um, on the flip side is, you know, interacting with the caddies who, who occupy a very, very different class, class position. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, on the basis of a kind of shared mutual trust, we, we sort of started out this arrangement and they kind of knew what I was doing. And, and um, but also a challenge was to sort of convince them that, that them telling me their stories was somehow going to, um, you know, uh, give, give them greater insight into their own lives and, and, and might not necessarily produce, I don't, I never promised any great transformational change in, in their lives or in the course of the golf clubs, but that it would add to our sort of collective understanding of how class and inequality worked. But, you know, uh, in many cases, these guys were illiterate. Um, if they were literate and had been educated, they, they didn't necessarily, you know, speak or write English. Um, I did have to hire translators to work with me. Um, and that, you know, access is an ongoing process. It's not like you get you, you get into somebody's home and then you can assume that you're going to have access to their home and their family lives, you know, for, for 10 years in, in, my, in my case. And I didn't have that. Um, I didn't believe that to be true. And so you, you can just continue to work these relationships. But, you know, as... As I'm doing the research, I, I mentioned the physical labor, and I, and I sort of finished off on a, on a previous point about the sort of the, the, the sort of human piece of this and the, and the moral uh, you know piece of this. Um, I mean, it was sort of tough to track and, and follow these guys' lives. Um, and at a certain point, I mean, we know when we go watch a movie or we watch a show on television, we kind of know at a certain point how the show or the movie is going to end. Um, and I did in some cases, um, and I, I did in all cases at a certain point, although it, it came at different points in the research, but, um, and sort of just knowing that 
that I wanted to see how that played out. Um, and knowing that there wasn't, there wasn't much that I could do as an individual researcher to change the trajectory of these guys' lives. Right. Um, as, as a way of gaining and keeping access. Um, and I was genuine and sincere in this. I, I would help caddies out, right? Like I, I bring some food over. Um, I, um, I'd help their children with, with homework. Uh, I would buy gifts for their wives. Um, I mean, I would do certain things, but I, there's also like, I, I could never repay them for what they've offered me. And pr- I mean, they provided me a career very, very clearly. And so, um, and we, we can talk about like what, what we owe our research subjects and, and the sort of politics and, and ethics of ethnography. And, and I mean, and we're running out of time too. Maybe that's another a story for another day or another podcast, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit about my own positionality and how I sort of interacted and related to the members, um, but also the caddies and sort of kept up these relationships over time with them. Yeah. Thank you for that though. Yes. Another day, another time. Um, yeah. because we're running out of time, but. Before yeah, we sure. go, yeah. uh, why don't you tell us what directions you're taking this work in or what just the next uh, project is, the next step in uh, analyzing some of these yeah, issues? So I have, yeah, I, I, have, I have two research projects um, ongoing right now. Um, one is sort of you m- might make more sense um, just on the surface. There, in 2014, I became acquainted with a, with a, with a private foundation um, that 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 educates uh, poor lower caste children um, and so I, I got I became acquainted with them and got to know them um, and it was it was founded by a former Wall Street executive and this this residential boarding school is located in a, in a sort of small village community a couple hour drive outside of Bangalore in, in Tamil Nadu um, and I was I was initially skeptical of of, of the founder and and just this the role of philanthropy might might be playing in, the, in these kids' lives and who was really benefiting, um, you know, based on what I was learning about the members and what the members were or were not doing for these golf caddies. But um, in this case, I mean, and I'm I'm happy to say that that this founder and what he's doing is 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 remarkable. Um, and these the kids who go going to the school are coming from desperately extremely poor families, but are finishing high school and speaking fluent English. And they're going to some of the best schools, best colleges, universities in Bangalore. Some of them are getting their MBAs in, in, in Asia and, and in Europe. Um, and I'm so that, that project is it really trying to like take seriously the efforts by privately funded uh, organizations and groups like this one to, to really, uh, you know, stem inequality and to, 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 to attend to poverty, poverty alleviation. So that project, I think over time, what, I, what I, my goal here um, is to track the graduates over time and to see how their lives um, uh, have become transformed or how they evolve. Right. Um, and I guess what, you know, one question is like, do they find them like, do they want to go back to their poor families and support their families and lift their families out of poverty? Certainly that's one of the objectives that the founder of the organization has for them. Um, but, you know, how do they negotiate and navigate those relationships with, with people who are still, in, you know, struggling with poverty? Um, and so there's the, the sort a of legacy of philanthropy in the case of this school. And then I have a second project that's really, you know, really just in its, in its early stages. It's, it's about the Mexican elite. Um, and, and that's the one that might appear like a complete 180, right, from what I've been doing previously, both with the education work I've just, I've just outlined, and as well as the book on the golf caddies and the members of these golf clubs. But 
how I try how I try to narrate this and think about it in, in my own writing on the project is like what I was dealing with in the case of the counties and the members was something very micro interactional. And I was looking at the effects and consequences in many cases of globalization on the lives of the poor and how globalization was 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 uh, deeply embedded and sort of guided and organized these relationships between the rich and the poor. And in the case of Mexico, I'm, I'm sort of going uh, like much more macro, right? Like I'm trying to understand, um, uh, you know, neoliberalism and how it unfolded in Mexico in the 1980s and 1990s and, and how, how a certain class of elites, the political and economic elite sort of brought about those changes um, and have benefited from those changes and, and whether or not others in the society as a whole has benefited um, so that you get to a point, you know, 30, 40 years later uh, where, where social mobility in Mexico is, you know, and there's a huge debate on this, but, but, but the, 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 literature, the literature that I'm seeing is saying that, you know, there's not much social mobility even 25 years after, the, uh, after signing NAFTA in the mid-1990s. Um, wages are, are, you know, are, are pretty much stagnant. Um, inequality is tremendous, right? Like you've got four billionaires in Mexico who account for around nine percent of GDP, right? Uh, I mean, there's just enormous class divides, and so I mean, I started the first project on the Gulf Caddies with like looking at Thomas Friedman and this this idea of, of a flat world, and sort of coming back at that and taking that really seriously. Like, where does this idea come from, and how did it evolve and 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 develop in the space of Mexico? What does this mean for the study of globalization? and political economy generally. That, that's what that work is about. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Good luck with those projects. And whenever those books come out, please <laughs> uh, come back. Okay. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Thanks a lot, Rich. Bye.